Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We will finish up the chapter today, verses 18 through 21. Please listen as I read the Word of God. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we do sing Hosanna this morning, looking back to the cross, knowing you have saved us, looking forward to the day when we will be able to say it to our Savior himself face to face. Thank you for the cross. Worthy are you to receive all glory, honor, and power. Thank you for saving us, for we could not save ourselves. Father, fill this place with resounding praise and glory, for you are worthy of every thought, every action, every word should be given to you as an expression of praise. And we ask you to do that through us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I posted a article on Facebook yesterday from the USA Today called Relationships are the new, rela uh, new Religion for Many. Check it out. I'm going to read some of it for you this morning. It's kind of sad, actually, when you think about it. Here's what this article says. For many people, holy days such as Easter and Passover have become simply holidays, celebrations with loved ones. But many see spiritual value in these gatherings. Emily Hilliard will cook a festive brunch with friends on Easter Sunday, but none of her Washington, D.C. social circle of foodies, folklorists, and fiddlers will go to church that day. In Denver, Ambra Vibran will enjoy an Italian feast with cousins that Sunday, but she says, my spiritual life is in hiking, skiing, kayaking, and enjoying God's creation. It's a stretch to recall when Vibran last went to church. Eleanor Dre plans a Jewish traditional meal where family and friends will talk about freedom, but it won't be on Passover, Monday night this year. Folks are tied up with their kids' spring vacations. They'll gather at Dre's San Francisco home in April instead. This week, most Americans will celebrate essential stories of Christianity and Judaism, God freeing the enslaved is a key Passover theme. Easter's core is Jesus' resurrection, offering a doorway to salvation. But many will celebrate with a twist. That means they're not going to go actually and celebrate anything. They're just as Christian, just as Jewish in their own eyes, as people who follow traditional scripts, church on Sunday, 
and so on. Esther Flea says, relationships have replaced religion for many millennials. She goes on and says, religion gives people a basis for morality, for hope, and a greater purpose. Millennials form their friendship groups around similar interests. They reinforce and encourage each other. Fleece's friend Vibrant, 30, takes the view that religion has evolved over the years. I feel like it's whatever you want it to be. I believe the Catholic moral values, but I don't feel I have to go to church to consider myself a believer in that. Hilliard, 29, might find herself singing old-time hymns on Easter. However, the singing is not about theology. Hymns offer, quote, a connection to tradition and history and to feeling part of something larger than yourself, says Hilliard, who plays the fiddle. Not sure why they threw that in, but they did. And on and on and on it goes. And that's sad. Should make us sad. Then at the end of the article, it says this. Rob Bell. Do you remember Rob Bell? He was a pastor of a mega church back in Michigan. Wrote a book called Love Wins, where he basically said, everybody goes to heaven. Once a nationally known pastor on the evangelical mega church scene no longer holds a pulpit. Praise God. That's not in the article. That's my editorial comment. <laughs> now he's working on TV pilots with a spiritual side and touring to tout his new book, quote, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. It's addressed, he says, quote, to all those people who feel reverence humming in them, but they're afraid to call it God because of all the baggage attached, end quote. Relationships may be replacing religion for some people because, says Bell, quote, it is our humanity that we have in common. Religion divided us and cut us off from each other. Lots of people have realized that if the religious, religious machine has value, it has to talk about what it means to be human. That's what makes holiday meals together at a table so important and profound. It's a way of encountering God. In holiness and sacred nature of all of life, from family to friends to neighbors to money and breath and sex and work and play and food and wine. Relationships. It's all about relationships. It's the new religion. Have family over. Have friends over. Celebrate Easter. Celebrate Good Friday. Celebrate whatever you want as long as you're with family. That's how we get to experience God. That's the new religion according to this article. I like to eat. I like friends. I like to eat with friends. And I like relationships, and we all like relationships. God made us to be communal relationship people. And this is all well and good until we stand before God at judgment. What relationship, what meal together with friends and family is going to help us when we stand before God and give an account for our lives and our thoughts and our actions and our deeds. None of our gatherings together over, over pot roast and gravy and potatoes, none of that is going to in any way atone for our sins, is it? None of these relationships, none of the hiking together and the kayaking together and the fiddling together, none of that is going to be of any value when someone stands before a holy God and he says, here's my standard, here's your life, how does it measure up? 
Remember the list of verdicts I read last Sunday to begin? There's no human relationship that will cause the jury to say, we find the accused not guilty. There's one relationship that will. And that is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which we celebrate on Easter and every other Sunday, and we should celebrate it every other day of our entire lives. To come together for Easter and not celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like having an anniversary meal and not celebrating your marriage. It's a nonsense gathering. It's only that relationship that brings salvation That's what Paul's been talking about in our passage in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following. A relationship with Jesus Christ. Only through that, through the gospel, through the cross and resurrection, do we have hope to stand before the tribunal of God one day and for him to say, not guilty. Righteous. Enter into your rest. Today we're going to finish up this, this challenging passage, difficult passage for sure. But it's a good passage. And as I said last week, let me say again, if you come away from Romans 5, 12 through 21, primarily thinking about original sin, I have failed as your pastor. This is not a passage primarily dealing with original sin. It's not about sin in its accent. It's about the abounding, lavish, overflowing grace of God Now, the reason it's gracious is because we are sinners. But Paul has not written this chapter so that we will come away saying, oh, man, is horribly corrupt and sinful. He's not expecting you to do morbid introspection and examine your life and say, oh, I don't measure up. He did that already in chapters 1 and 2. That was the point there. The wrath of God is being poured out. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We've all fallen short. We should look inside ourselves and say, yes, I'm a miserable sinner. That was one and two and part of three. But now in chapters four and especially chapter five, what he wants us to do is come away rejoicing, celebrating, dancing, feasting. Because he's a gracious God who loves us forever and ever and ever and ever. Let me remind you of of where we've been in this section. He started off in verse 12 speaking about how sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And through his sin, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. He's not talking about your sin. He's talking about Adam's sin. Everybody dies because Adam sinned. And then he decides he better explain this a little bit. So he speaks about how the law, but even before the law came and was given to Moses, people died. That was proof positive that we died because of Adam's sin. They didn't need their own sin. They were already going to die because of Adam's sin. And then he makes a statement at the end of verse 14 that Adam was a type of Christ. He was a pattern. He was a picture, a forepicture of Jesus. And and the, the relationship he was establishing was Adam represents a group of people. And Jesus represents a group of people. And everyone who is in Adam experiences his consequences. And everyone who is in Jesus experiences his. And as he explained this, he showed us the lavish grace of God. We looked at this last week. The free gift is not like the transgression that Adam committed. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more, remember we talked about much more certain, 
did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned, for on the one hand, judgment through one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift from many transgressions resulted in justification. We don't expect that. When you start piling up sins and disobedience, you expect more condemnation, but the free gift is justification, being declared righteous. It says, for if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then today in verses 18 and 19, he reiterates one more time this same dichotomy between these two groups. Verse 18 says, So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, that's Jesus, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, a couple of things deserve comment here. One is the use of all. As soon as we see the word all, we start to scratch our head and say, wait a minute. Did Jesus' obedience now really procure justification for all men everywhere? Is everybody going to heaven? Was Rob Bell right when he wrote his book, Love Wins? No, we've got to keep it in the context, right? We've read over and over again. We've studied chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, and we've studied the rest of the New Testament. Hopefully you've read the Bible more than once. He has made the case with with great clarity, only those who have faith in the gospel are the recipients of the work of Christ. So we've got to take it in its context. For example, Ben announced to you that everyone is is invited to stay for Roger and Julie's wedding. You're invited. Everyone's invited. Now, if you get on your texting and and tweeting and Facebook page and start inviting the entire city in, and we get thousands of people here for this wedding and say, there's going to be cake, you're going to have taken Ben out of context. When he said everyone, he meant everyone here right now. There's a limit to his universal statement, everyone. The cake's not that big. I've seen it. It's limited to the people who are in this room. So when Paul says all are justified, he's talking about the people in a particular place, so to speak. So on one hand, he's talking about all who are in Adam. Every human being who is in Adam suffers the consequences of Adam's sin. Well, guess how many people are in Adam? Everybody. Every human being who's ever lived is in Adam. Therefore, as those in Adam, if this is Adam, if Adam's a place and this place is right here, everybody is in Adam, they suffer the consequences, they'll be condemned. But on the other hand, he says, all who are in Christ. Now, Jesus is a a place, a, a, a location. All who are in Jesus will be justified. How do you get in Jesus? You believe the gospel. You put your trust in his death and resurrection. And everybody who does that is now transferred from Adam to Jesus, and they are justified for life. So don't take this as a universal statement. It's not. 
Then the other thing that deserves comment is he speaks of one transgression. That's easy enough to figure out. That's when Adam ate the apple or peach or whatever fruit it was. Then he speaks of one act of righteousness. Well, what act is that? Jesus lived an entire life of righteous actions. So which one secured our justification? Well, there's a sense in which you have to look at his entire life, right? If he had disobeyed even at one point, he couldn't be our Savior. He himself would need a Savior if he had sinned. So there's a sense in which it's his whole life is that act of obedience. And he said repeatedly, I've come to do my Father's will. I do whatever he tells me to do. But certainly the accent, the climax of his entire life was the one act of obedience going to the cross where Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that he was obedient even to death and death on a cross. So it all heads toward that one great action that redeems us and brings our justification. Then the next verse, verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See, now instead of saying all, he's saying many. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So the many who are in Adam are sinners. The many who are in Christ are made righteous. Now the question comes, does he mean we're actually made righteous? We become righteous? We're good people? Or is he still talking about being declared righteous? I think it's that, because he's using verse 19 to explain verse 18. One man's sin led to condemnation. Another man's obedience led to justification. For, he says, through the one act... Through the one obedience, many were made sinners in God's eyes, guilty. And on the other act, many were made righteous in God's eyes because of Christ. There's another thing I think may be going on here. This idea of justifying many. If you were a Jewish thinker, if you knew the law, if you knew the Old Testament, justification and many would conjure up something in your ears. If you were paying attention when the Kahlbergs sang a few minutes ago, it still might conjure up some things in your ears. What passage of Scripture do you suppose the song they sang came from? Anybody know? Got a guess? You can, you can talk. Nobody knows? Maybe Isaiah 53? Do you know Isaiah 53? Listen to what Isaiah wrote centuries prior to the coming of Jesus. It says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now the next word here is all. All of us like sheep have gone astray. He's talking about Jews here. He's speaking to his fellow Jews. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Here in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, God is already declaring that his perfect, spotless, innocent son would come and give his life and justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I think that's echoing in the background in Paul's mind as he's writing Romans 5. This one who would die would take upon himself our sin so that the many could be justified and declared righteous. This was God's plan all along. It's not a new thing. It's not a reaction. It's what he sent Jesus to do and had planned for centuries before. Now again, put yourself in the mind of a, of a Jewish listener for a second. What Paul's just done is established all of humanity was basically decided with Adam and Jesus. As soon as Adam sinned, all of his offspring, all of his children were condemned before God. Jesus was going to come and suffer the wrath that we deserve. So what about the law? If it was already decided, why send the law through Moses? Why establish this list of Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that we have to read through in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy? Why do all that if everyone's condemned anyway? Aha, they would say, surely the law was sent to undo what Adam had done. Surely the law was given so that the people would see God's standards and turn from their sin and become righteous. Paul knows that's what Jews would think, and so he tells us why the law was given. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, that's not what we usually think about when we think about laws, do we? We don't usually think a law was given so that we'll break them. We know there are consequences to breaking them. We think the law is given to show us what is right. Well, in a sense, of course it is. But in God's plan in the history of redemption, his plan for the world, God didn't give the law to the Jews to make them more righteous. He gave the law to the Jews to show them they were unrighteous. He already said that in chapter 3. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And he's going to spend the entire chapter, chapter 7, explaining this. So I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning. But that's the point. God had already determined and condemned everyone in Adam. He was going to justify his people through Christ. The law was given so that 
uh, sin would multiply and we would understand we desperately need a Savior because we're sinful people. And it worked for anyone who understands their behavior. But Paul doesn't spend very much time there right now because he wants to get back to his biggest point. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Did you have any whipped cream this week? I had quite a bit. It was my birthday, and I think people decided it would be a fun thing to do is get me whipped cream. Hey, I'm not complaining. Did you lavish whipped cream on anything? Big piece of pie, big piece of cake, something? Ben lavished cream cheese on his bagel or something this week. And he said it worked. He said he remembered last week's sermon. See, it works. Don't forget the context here. God's grace overflows. It superabounds. It is heaped upon us. Where sin increases, God's grace is bigger and wider and thicker and more powerful, and it covers us so much that we can't see the sin beneath it. That's Paul's point. Yes, all sinned in Adam. Yes, we're all guilty because of Adam. But way more important than that, way more certain than that, way more glorious than that is the fact that God's grace reigns over his people. He says in verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see how he's personifying sin again? Sin is on the throne. Sin reigns. Sin is the master saying, you will die, and you will die, and you will die because you're a sinner and because you're in Adam. It was the ruler and the reign. And now there's a new sheriff in town. Right, Dan? There's a new king on the throne. It's grace. And grace says, be gone, sin. I'm in charge here. And I'm covering God's people. Now put this back in the broader context. I told you when we started chapter 5, chapters 5 through 8 are a, a unit. And he's trying to show us in this section what is ours because of justification. Justification is the grace in which we stand back in verse 2. We have peace with God because we have been declared righteous. He loves us. He has reconciled us. He will give us everything. If God declares us righteous, who's going to bring a charge against us? Nobody can because we're righteous in Christ. So condemnation is taken care of. We have nothing to fear on judgment day because we've been declared righteous. Suffering is altogether different now that Christ has come, now that we have been justified. We can be certain that God is not punishing us. He's not bringing these hard things upon us because he's angry with us. He's already reconciled us. He's already declared us righteous. Now suffering is a tool for us to boast in and say, I can endure this because God loves me and has declared me righteous and his hope springs forth in my heart. And I will look this suffering in the face and walk through it all the way to the end because God is good. 
And then, specifically dealing with the last few verses here, sin reigned in death. Death is no more. Death's sting, he says elsewhere, has been removed and taken away. Yes, we're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. But death's reign has come to an end. This was God's plan all along. There is a passage also in Isaiah that is so wonderful in foreshadowing what was going to come centuries later. Here's what he wrote in chapter 25. He said, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. He's saying, God, you had something in store, and you've got these plans that are coming down the pike, and you have determined this a long time ago, and they're going to come to pass. He talks about judgment and a few things, and in verse 6 he says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. We are going to feast. We are going to have a, a huge, glorious meal. But we're not going to be worshiping and celebrating relationships when that takes place. We're going to be celebrating the goodness of God and the glory of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But God is the one preparing this meal on this mountain. Imagine Pikes Peak. Imagine somewhere up the hill there, the Lord himself coming and setting this amazing banquet before us. Lots and lots and lots of pie and whipped cream. I promise. God's going to do this. He says, and on this mountain he will... Swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Do you see that? There is something that covers all nations, all peoples. There's this veil, this curtain that overshadows everybody across the globe. And someday God's going to swallow it up and remove that veil. What is it? What is it that covers everyone and everything? Next verse. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day... Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might, Hosanna, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad. In his salvation. This salvation has been planned for centuries, millennia even, where he would swallow up death 
and wipe away our tears and prepare a feast for his people to gather and celebrate his goodness and we will rejoice and be glad. That's the message of Romans 5. That's the heart of this dichotomy between Adam and Jesus. In Adam, we all die. We all suffer God's judgment. But in Christ, we have eternal life forever with him. And that is reason to rejoice and reason to celebrate. And so I ask you this morning two things. Number one, do you live a life that represents the, the reign of grace? I asked last week, what is there to fear? What is there to get nitpicky about? If God has forgiven us our sin, if we have eternal life secured, what is there to be afraid of? What is there to be all wound up about? Today I want to ask, do you live your life with a single devotion to Jesus Christ? You're not wrapped up in your work. You don't live for the next paycheck. You don't live for the next experience. You don't live to go and and hike and kayak. You don't live for any human relationships. Your greatest passion in all of life is to praise the living God for his grace shown to us through Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian does. That's what separates us from the world who just goes through the motions and calls themselves Christians, but their passions really are about humanity and our commonality in each other. Our commonality, our unity is around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if grace reigns over us, it, we will be different. We will have fellowship. We will have meals together. We will have banquets, what they will all be because we love Jesus and want to glorify him. My second question is, when's the last time you told somebody about God's grace? Did you tell anybody this week? Have you told somebody that they can be removed from their plight over here and be in Jesus Christ and have eternal life? If you haven't told somebody recently, my question is, why not? Let's live as those who are under the rule of grace and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Romans chapter 5. There are some challenging parts, some things that we still have to sort out, but the clear message is obvious to all who see it. You love us. You have forgiven us. You have declared us righteous because of your son, Jesus, and our lives are eternal with you forever as the recipients of your superabounding grace. Father, I ask, would you make us men and women, boys and girls, who live as though grace truly reigns, as though God's grace is our King, because God's grace is Jesus Christ, and he is our King. Father, loose our lips this week, to tell someone, as Good Friday comes, as Easter comes, loose our lips not to celebrate feasting in chicken or pork or ham or 
even whipped cream. May we tell them about Jesus. The love you have shown us in Jesus. The forgiveness you have shown us in Jesus. And may our lives reflect those who understand and believe that through Jesus Christ we have eternal forgiveness. May it be so for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name.